And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. What a time to be alive. The World Cup is months away. Americans are scoring goals in Europe. Manchester United dominant over Liverpool once again. All is right with the world. Except in Scotland, where Graham Ruffin has been holding a one-man protest against Rangers uh, after Malik Tillman was left out of their squad for their 2-2 draw this past weekend. Graham, you've been outside the stadium for several days now. Any response from the club? (laughs) They just made me do that Malik Tillman challenge over and over again, which was very very humiliating because there's no way that I'm jumping that high. Jump higher, Graham. <laughs> Jump higher. I'm trying, Joe. I'm trying. This the, the protest became, I guess, like a, a gladiator situation. I'm confused. Graham, I'm worried about you. We've got Graham protesting in Scotland slash being made to physically compete in competitions. Over in Arizona, Joe Lowry has been creating a USMNT number nine depth chart, which I believe is now 45 players long. We have not yet let Joe sleep. Since he finishes his depth chart, which means, Joe, I'm picturing a lot of scribbled notes on pieces of paper tacked to walls with red string connecting them. Is that about right? Yep, I'm just that gif right now. That's that's all I'm doing. I, although, Taylor, you didn't get the memo from FIFA that every national team actually has to start four strikers at the exact same time. It's going to be 15 or, or, I guess, 14 players on the field at this upcoming World Cup. It's going to be weird. It's going to be strange. But I think the U.S., with all these just really top-tier nines they have, is going to be in great shape. Joe, you've taken us down a road here because I'm wondering which country does that favor the most? My automatic assumption is Brazil, but I don't know if that's just because I assume they have a depth of talent uh, greater than any other nation. Yeah, just just all the good teams. So Brazil and, and France are the yeah, two that came to mind for me first in terms of the <laughs> deepest teams in the world. I think those teams would do some damage. And then the USA, Scotland close behind uh, <laughs> there. We are going to, uh, on today's episode, talk about some Americans who did things this weekend. We're also going to be answering your USMNT-centric questions. We got a lot of questions on Twitter. We have done our best to curate a few and combine a few since there were several uh, familiar, similar topics. Let's start with the Americans doing things in Europe, specifically an American who will soon be doing things in Europe, I think. Georgi Mihailovic, he's been heavily linked with a move to AZ. The deal seems imminent, but also seems complicated in that he likely wouldn't be able to be sent back on loan. So that means maybe the move won't happen until January. Joe, can you give us the the details as you understand them? Sure. So reports came out from Jeff Carlisle and Tom Bogert and, and a number of other folks over the weekend that George Mihalovic of CF Montreal used to play for the Chicago Fire on the fringes of the U.S. men's national team pool was ready to move to Azed Alkmaar over in the Eredivisie in the Netherlands. And so he, he missed uh, CF Montreal's game against the Revolution over the weekend to go and apparently do his medical. And so we're still waiting on, on more information and all of that. Initially, the reports were that he could be loaned back to Montreal, and then I think sort of everyone realized the MLS transfer window is over. And so I, I think at this point in the season, and this is what Carlisle said, that, that really can't happen at this point. So at this point, it looks like 
the move is going to happen after the MLS season is done. So likely terms will be agreed to now or at some point in the next few days, if everything goes according to plan. Then Georgie will finish the rest of the season with Montreal. He'll, he'll try to guide them through the playoffs because they are a very, very good team. And then once they're done, the reporting that I've seen is that maybe sometime in November, he'll go over to the Netherlands and start training with them. Now, this could get a little bit of a wrench thrown into it, depending on what the World Cup looks like for Georgie Mihailovic. But he'll go at some point after the MLS season, go start training in the Netherlands, then get officially registered in the winter, and then he'll be a, a, an Azad Alkmaar player for the future. The- and that's probably the the best scenario for him, right? In terms of if it's a choice between making a move now or making a move in January, I think it's if if the World Cup is a factor in his decision, which it feels like it might be, then staying in Montreal and obviously he's had the injury recently and playing some more games there, helping him get back on his feet, and then maybe making a case as as you said, Joe, he has a bit of a fringe player, so he has a bit of ground to make up. But at Montreal, it feels like he's got a better chance of of doing that in MLS between now and the end of the season in MLS rather than going to Europe at this point and having to to break his way into a into a new team and a new league and a new culture and having to do it all in the space of three months before that World Cup arrives. It feels like this is probably the best situation for him. I can't believe how much you you both, but Graham, you particularly just then, have swayed me because this was a move that I wanted to see happen and was sort of disappointed that it wouldn't be happening right away, understanding why Montreal want to keep him, uh, why it would be important for him to stay there. But at the same time, uh, that move excites me. I think it's a good move to yeah. a good club. Yeah, a, agreed. A, what, like the, I would say the third or fourth, maybe the fourth biggest club in uh, the Netherlands, uh, maybe at least in recent memory to me. And so I think it would have been a good move or it is a good move, but you're right, though, that it does give him that time to potentially train with the team before uh, January. If he's at the World Cup, if he's in with the U.S. squad, then he has that sort of gap there. But the the season is already done, and then his future is already sorted. So it does seem like a much more stable situation for him to make that move. Joe, where are you on Mihailovic in the U.S. squad for the World Cup? I'm high on him. I wanted him back in June, and of course he was dealing with a with an injury that didn't allow him to go and participate in that squad. But let's not forget, if we if we think back to that June window, the role that Aronson played, certainly against Morocco, and, and kind of the role that McKenney played against Uruguay, where they're defending as a central midfielder in a in a four three three, and then the U.S. shifts their shape, and this was true against Morocco especially, into like a a three two five, so that that right sided central midfielder becomes basically a half-space guy, and, and is a pseudo-winger, pseudo-central midfielder. Aronson played that role, but Greg Berhalter talked about it being, about that spot being something where he wanted George Mihailovic to play. And so we didn't get to see that. I would really like to see that in September. I think the injury has set Georgie back a little bit in MLS this year, but his numbers are good. He's, he's at the level where if you can find a nice little spot like that one for him, I think he could be really interesting in that hybrid role. Now, defensively, I have some questions. It's not like he's not putting in effort, but he's not the most athletic guy. He doesn't have the the speed or aggression that even uh, someone like Luca De La Torre might have in that spot, or certainly the MMA midfield. He's not a, a carbon copy of those players, but I think he does a lot of good stuff. I also just think he's ready for a move, and, and he could be ready now, or he could be ready in, in the winter window. I think the winter window does make a lot of sense. Alex Calabrese wrote a really good piece for this uh, for us over at Backyield, where he referenced this quote that Berhalter had recently about how it makes sense for players to go to Europe when they're dominant in MLS, when the league doesn't pose the same challenge. That's a paraphrasing of the quote, but that's basically what Berhalter's saying. And he said that in reference to players like George Bello going to Armenia Bielefeld in Germany and really not maybe being ready for that challenge and not doing a whole lot of good 
once he's there. The same very much goes for Brian Reynolds, who's another player that Brawlter mentioned. Goes to Roma for a lot of money, very talented player, just is still missing a bunch in his game. And you go to a situation with Jose Mourinho at Roma, that's, that's really not going to suit you all that well. And then you go, and, and now he's at uh, Vesterloo in Belgium, and that's just maybe not the best situation for him either. Georgie's proven it in MLS, unlike those players did. He's ready to go. Four goals, 13 assists last year. Seven goals, three assists in 1,500 minutes this year. Some great underlying numbers in each of the last three years. And I think Azed is a club at a good level where he can go and shine. And if he plays well there, not that it's going to be without competition, but if he plays well then you're in a good spot to continue that ladder and continue to climb that ladder going forward. It feels like the Eredivisie as well is a, is a good fit for him because I agree, Joe, it feels like he is ready for that that next step. He's obviously been excellent since since leaving uh, Chicago and, and, and joining Montreal. I'm, I'm not quite sure he's quite at, you know, sort of Premier League or top end of La Liga level or anything like that. So the Eredivisie feels like a good stepping stone league, particularly for attacking players. It feels like the Eredivisie gives opportunities to attacking players. Obviously, there's a good technical level there. And, and as I say, a focus on, on, on attacking football. So it's, uh, I think it's a good move for him. And also, Alkmaar's meant to be quite nice. There's a cheese museum there. So I hope <laughs> Mihalovic is a fan of the smelly stuff. How do you know the, these random things, Graham? How do you know about all the food history of different areas? <laughs> so weirdly, uh, as Ed Altmar, I've, I've watched them this season. They actually played Dundee United in, in qualification for the, the Europa Conference League. So I read quite a bit about their team and also some guides on uh, Altmar as, as a city itself. I, I don't have random factoids like that for every Dutch city, just Altmar and uh, I guess Amsterdam. I've been there before. I, I don't believe you. I assume that in your spare time, you're just reading about random European cities and their, <laughs> their like key professions, just so you know these little tidbits. And Graham, that's what makes you a pro. Also, what makes you a pro is that you've watched 900 different teams already this season, one of them being AZ. Can you talk us through a little bit about how they play, what we should expect for Mihailovic if and when he does make that move? Yeah, so as I say, they, they played Dundee United in Europa Conference League qualification, everyone's favourite third-tier competition, and I, and I was very impressed with how they played that game. They actually lost the first leg 1-0. They weren't so impressive in, in, in that leg, but they won the second leg 7-0, and some of the football that they played in that second leg was just absolutely sensational. They are very technical, technically able. They like to play with the ball at their feet, which perhaps isn't too surprising for... Uh, for a Dutch team, and as far as I can tell, this is a team that scores a lot of goals. They've scored five times in their first two Eredivisie games this season. They've won both those games, or at the time of recording, they've only played two games. Their main man up front is a, a Greek international striker called Pavlidis. He scored six goals already this season. He scored 18 times in Eredivisie last season. So I expect that when Mihalovic makes this move, um, if it's in, in January, that's that's the... The, the central striker he'll be expected to link up with. And, and I'll be interested to see how Azed use Mihalovic and in which position he's de- deployed because they tend to use a 4-2-3-1 shape. So slightly different to what uh, Montreal have, have used. And he could be used on either the left side or or um, in behind Pavlidis as a central striker, but I would suggest it will probably be on the left side because Azed have uh, Danny DeVitt as a number 10, and he's had an, uh, he had an excellent season last season, reaching double figures for goals in Eredivisie. A lot of people expect him to be a full Dutch international soon. I've seen his name linked with Premier League clubs. So he's one of Azed's best players, and I think it would take a lot for Mihalovic to dislodge him from the team. But I think Pascal Janssen, who is the, the Azed coach, will be looking to that position on the left side of the three as maybe somewhere Mihalovic can slot in. Joe, are you good with uh, him on the left in a 4-2-3-1? Does that suit his style enough for you? 
I think it does. I, I, the one thing I like about Mihailovic is that he can really do any of those jobs. So DeVitt is going to be a difficult player to pass in that number 10 depth chart. But in spot minutes at the 10 or playing out, out wide, and I, I want wide in air quotes because I really just mean he's going to come inside and play in those half spaces. I think Mihailovic is very good at doing those things. And going to a team that plays a 4-2-3-1 gives him plenty of different spots to, to go out there and get minutes. Joe, uh, two more questions for you. The first, uh, Graham mentioned Dundee United. Uh, can you guess Dundee United's main rival? It's a, it's a, it's a very tricky one. <laughs> Livingston, Rangers, Celtic, <laughs> Ma- take, away, tra- take away one of the words from the team name I just said. Undy United. <laughs> it is Dundee. <laughs> Dundee United's main rival is Dundee. And Graham, they're what, like eight feet apart? Something yeah. like that? I was going to say, better than the fact that the two rivals are called Dundee and Dundee United. They play on the same street. They play in Tannadice Street. <laughs> oh, I, can, I did know this. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's honestly, I'm not even sure if it is 100 yards. It, it might be less than 100 yards. But if you ever, Danny Dyer, the, the, the famous yeah. English TV personality, he did a, he did a, a, a TV series on rivalries in the UK, YouTube, Danny Dyer, Dundee rivalry, it's, it's very entertaining. Is that Football Factory? I think so, yeah. I was struggling right. to remember the name of the show that he did there, but I think that's what it was called, yeah. There we are. All right, Joe, we'll move you away from hooligans. I'll instead ask you about the U.S. depth, depth chart one more time. Would Mihailovic be in your depth chart for the World Cup if they hadn't expanded the roster? Because it does seem like he would take up likely either a midfield spot or one of those attacking... Uh, sort of wide spots, and we have plenty of depth there. So that's where I get a little bit confused about where exactly he fits sure. in or who he slots ahead of. If everybody's healthy, I, I think you're probably not bringing him to the World Cup in a 23-player roster. Maybe you are. He, he is right on the fringes. In a 26-player roster, I'm I'm really intrigued by the idea of bringing Georgie, especially so for September, because Taylor, I know you saw this, Graham, I don't know if you did, Tim Way is injured, again, because Tim Way is always injured, uh, just like the rest of the U.S. men's national team player pool. So it's a little unknown as to whether or not Way is going to be involved in September. Last I read, he he likely was going to be staying at Leo, but a lot can change between now and about a month from now. But if Way is not there, you just had a, a winger spot open up, and George Mihaljevic can go and do that hybrid thing for the national team. And I, I think there's very much a spot for him in that group. I think there might have even been a spot for him before Wea went down with the injury. And, in, and even if everybody's healthy, I like the idea of bringing Georgie. But I, I really don't see a reason why we shouldn't see him in September at this point. And if he plays well in September, I think we'll see him in November too. George Mihaljevic versus Malik Tillman death match for that final uh, <laughs> wide spot. As whoever long as it's can, not about jumping, I think George. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. whoever can jump highest gets the ticket to the plane. Uh, this is where I'm, I'm going to show my hand for a moment and say, I've already forgotten this. What is the Malik Tillman challenge? It's just so, jumping really high. Okay. Yeah, so so he scored a very important Champions League qualification goal for Rangers, mm-hmm. and his leap is incredible. So Rangers have made, they have like a fan zone outside Ibrox, so they've okay. made a Malik Tillman challenge, <laughs> and, and the fans have to jump as high as Malik Tillman. I'm Which, not sure what the prize is, but... Which go. of the three of us would be able to do it best? Not I, me. I would wager that it would be Graham, given well, that he is taller than I yeah, think I both like, of us, Taylor. I feel like I have a natural advantage. I think I'm the tallest of the three of us, so I, I'm, I'm not very good at jumping, but I, I have a yeah an, an advantage here. I Wait, Taylor, I feel the, like entire, the entire thing is just height. It's not like how high you jumped. It's no, just it is, yeah. Okay. It if is you're both. taller, like you're already closer to the target. So <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. I, th- this feels like heightism. I, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with this anymore. Uh, Joe, my money would be on you. I feel like Joe has the the basketball build yeah like basketball get up yeah. There. yeah yeah i do definitely for sure that sounds like a lot we're gonna take a break we're gonna be back to talk about two more americans in just a moment first a break to hear from today's sponsors 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are continuing to talk about young Americans playing abroad. And to help us do our Americans Abroad segment, we are sponsored by FX's Welcome to Wrexham, which premieres August 24th on FX. You can stream it on Hulu. This new original documentary series focuses on two very famous Americans abroad, Canadian Americans in Ryan Reynolds' case, but Rob McElhenney, all the way American, as they take over the struggling Welsh football club Wrexham AFC of the fifth tier of the English Football League system. This week, we'll focus on an American abroad who also competes in a lower league with similar dreams of promotion. Graham, I know fans of the championship would not love it being called a lower league, but it's the second (laughs) division in England, so we're going to roll with it. Josh Sargent has been doing things in the championship. Let's talk Josh Sargent, Graham, uh, a player that I know you watched plenty of last season, now getting to watch him in the championship. Has he found his level, or at least has he found some confidence? Oh, he's definitely found some some confidence. Norwich City are so enthralled with Josh Sargent right now that they've started playing Born in the USA at home matches. And I love how so many people miss the actual meaning yeah. of that song. Yeah. But anyway, Josh mm-hmm. Sargent is doing well for Norwich City, finally. He's scored three goals in his last two games, including two and a win over Millwall at the weekend. And it's been a wee while since we saw this Josh Sargent. Obviously, last season was a real struggle for him in the Premier League. Um, he was most commonly played on the wing and, and Norwich were just, I think it's fair to say they were just completely out of their depth as they went straight back down. So there weren't really many opportunities for Sargent. You you say there, Taylor, has he found his, his level? And maybe that's maybe that's a blunt way to look at things, but that is, that's definitely a factor. Mm-hmm. Two things have changed for Sargent since last season. One, it's fairly obvious, Norwich are in a, a lower division. So they're going to have more chances. They're going to score more goals. Stating the obvious, that's a, a better scenario for, for Sargent rather than feeding off scraps in, in the Premier League. The other thing that has changed recently is that Sargent has been playing as a centre forward through the middle. Um, of course, this, has, this is his actual position. So again, stating the obvious, this suits him better. However, this has been due to an injury to Timu Puki, and, and, and this was the, the downside of that win over Millwall in which Sargent scored twice. When Puki came off the bench for the final few minutes to make his comeback from injury, he replaced George, George Sargent in the team. And the last game that Puki started for Norwich before injury, uh, Sargent was on the bench, and when he did come on, it was on the right wing again. So Norwich have a game against Bournemouth in the AFL uh, Cup tonight as we're recording. They then have a league game against Sunderland at the weekend. It's, I guess it's entirely possible that Sargent is either back on the bench or back in the wing for those games with Pookie back and, and fit. 
But Dean Smith has surely now seen what Sargent can do as a centre forward in his own right. And I would be disappointed if that is the end of his run in that position. I want to see him play more in that position and it feels like he's delivered for Norwich. And that's that's the question. We're at sort of a crossroads. I know it's early in this season, but we're at, we're at sort of a crossroads with Sargent right now of seeing what Dean Smith is going to do. Because, Graham, you laid out that timeline perfectly. When Timu Pukki's been playing and healthy, Sargent's on the wing or he's on the bench. When Timu Pukki's out, Sargent's at the nine and he's scoring goals. What What is Dean Smith going to decide? I, I, I don't think you can get rid of Timu Pukki playing as the number nine. He should be the starter for this team in that role. So that leads to a number of different options for Dean Smith. One is to go back to the same thing that we've been seeing all season long and that we saw with Josh Sargent on the wing last year or on the bench. The other option is, is maybe to change the shape. And I don't know personally, as much as I like to watch Josh Sargent, that he's good enough to warrant a shape change when Norwich are getting results. So I don't know what's going to happen here. What I do know is that we've seen some pretty classic Josh Sargent stuff out of Josh Sargent over the last week, week and a half. What's his name again? He, One more time. Sorry, I missed it. Uh, Josh Sargent something. Yeah. I Josh don't know. I, that's probably yeah. not right, but I'm just going to go with it. We've been seeing a lot of that stuff. We see him pressing. We see him fighting for every ball. There's a, a good moment in the 40th minute of the game, the most recent game that they played against Millwall, where he, he fights for a long ball, ends up winning it, and earns possession. And Sargent's gritty. He'll do that kind of stuff. He's aggressive. He's physical. And then he's also laying off the ball quickly. He has a really nice layoff early against Millwall on Friday. And then another just really beautiful one in the 48th minute. He's got some clever touches. He's drawing fouls. And the most important stuff in all of this is his movement in the box. Because that's been the issue for Sargent in the past. That's why he consistently gets put out on the wing or on the bench. is because he's not a goal-dangerous number 9. He's been goal dangerous, right? He's moving in the box. He has a, has a header that he scores earlier on last week. Then he goes out and scores a brace. That's that's good for Josh Sargent. He needs to be putting the ball in the back of that. And he needs to be moving in the box. And even on some of the clips that don't result in goals, there's a few sequences of him running purposefully in the box and finding yeah. a little bit of space and either not getting the ball or getting the ball and not putting it on frame. But either way, those are positive building blocks to a regular scoring striker. That's the stuff I want to see from Sargent. Now yeah. the question going forward is just, is Dean Smith going to use him in that spot or not? The, the sample size is small, given that it's only a, we're only really talking about a, a couple games where he's been playing in that position. But going on that sample size, the, the biggest difference for me, because all the, all the normal hallmarks are there, work rate, good speed, mobility, as you mentioned, Joe, all the Josh Sargent things have been there. But the thing that has been different is just a, some, a greater degree of conviction in his play, the way that he took both goals against Millwall, for example, the, the second one in particular, where he's released in behind, and yes, there's, it's a little bit messy, the, the creation for that goal, but nonetheless, he's released in behind, and he has so much time to think about that finish, and he doesn't even flinch. You know, yep. he just sticks it away in, in, in the bottom corner. The first goal as well, I think, showed just how there's a sharpness to his interchange play, or certainly in these these couple games we're talking about, there's been a sharpness to his his, inter, his interchange play, where everything is just done at such pace, and as I say, that word conviction, that I think he's making smarter runs as, as well, so he looks pretty sharp at the moment in pretty, pretty much all areas of the game, and I, I just want to see more, because I think I think he is a very easy player to like Josh Sargent. And I think it's quite telling that even after a terrible, terrible season last year at Norwich, that Norwich fans, that place has got quite toxic recently. And I, and I, th- I think they still are on side with Sargent. And everything I've read says he's a popular figure in the dressing room. Although one quote said, players always speak in an American accent around him. Mm. And I can imagine that would get very grating after That's a while. Hilarious. That's hilarious. Yeah, That's really that, funny. What, what a great joke. Uh, but his, his, his dad was at the Millwall game, so that was nice. And I think people are really rooting for for Josh Sargent. So 
I, I personally think he's earned his chance to show what he, what he can do in his favoured position over a, a slightly more prolonged period of time, and I hope he gets that in Norwich. I really enjoy, Joe, you talked about him running purposefully. Uh, Graham, you mentioned his conviction there, especially for that second goal. I, I enjoyed he had uh, Daniel Sanani uh, out on the right who was like open. He could have slotted it across, and then that would have been a shot probably from at a more open goal. But instead, he finishes... And there was never that moment of, oh, he's going to pass it here. He never seemed like he was even considering it. He was going to go the whole way. And there is that conviction. There is that belief. He had another moment in that game against Millwall where he did a version of what uh, Brandon Aronson did against Chelsea. He doesn't score, but he pressures the goalkeeper. He almost forces – or he does force a giveaway. I think the ball gets – uh, blocked out wide for a corner kick in the end. But it's still really good running, really good determination from him. And I think there is a belief there. There's an alertness to it that just we didn't see last season, I think. And, and when you have a player getting that confidence, having that self-belief, it is only a good thing. So though there were still moments where I thought he over-dribbled or made the wrong decision or gave a pass away, I saw many more positives than I think I am used to seeing from Josh Sargent. And to me... That's pretty massive progress. Uh, but Graham, you talking about Americans and the American accent, it does make me wonder, is Josh Sargent like, like the most American name of any U.S. M&T player you can think of? Is Tyler Adams in that conversation? What about Matt Turner? Who's the one that you're just definitively like, yep, that's an American? Uh, Taylor Rockwell is a rather <laughs> American I'll name. Although, although, as we learned earlier this week, maybe that is actually an English name with your uh, Somerset roots. Yeah, t- yes, Taylor Browning Rockwell, I think, is, is pretty English. I wish I had something else. My, my grandfather was Wallace Randolph. I feel like you can guess where he was from, uh, Graham. <laughs> um, and I do think my final question about Josh Sargent, uh, if we're agreeing that Born in the USA is less so a rah-rah, yay America song, more so a scathing indictment of American foreign policy and over-reliance on military might to the, at the expense of the working class. What would be <laughs> the good song that we could play? I lean towards Miley Cyrus's party in the USA. That feels that's like an one. easy one. That's Or Team gonna... America. <laughs> that, that, that one too. Yeah, let's go that way. Let's keep it militant, but let's make it funny at the same time. <laughs> Either one of those works for me. Uh, but Joe, I'll go back to you for your uh, depth chart rankings since they were introduced in the beginning. Uh, where is he on the uh, tack to the wall, uh, red red string everywhere listing? Do you have Josh Sargent in that conversation or does he still have work to do before he's even involved in the conversation? He's on the giant wall that I have with just mm-hmm. sticky notes randomly placed everywhere. Yep. And every sticky note says, last name, dash, in contention. That's where Josh Sargent is. He's in contention along with pretty much every other number nine that has an American passport that is playing professional soccer right now. Uh, I, I think Sargent has gotten his name back in that conversation after sort of being on the periphery for a while. He's certainly involved. I, I don't know really where he falls mm-hmm. right now at the moment. If everyone's in form and it is ready to go... It's a different conversation, but right now with so much time left still before the World Cup, yeah, he's involved in the discussion, but I'm not really ready to say anything more than that. How happy would you be then if this coming weekend it's Timu Puki starts, it's nil-nil in the 70th, Josh Sargent subs on and scores, and we're then feeling like, okay, this is the reminder, like Josh Sargent can do things, maybe Timu Puki cannot. Does that make you feel better even if he didn't start? Um, I, weirdly, I don't care as much if he scores or not. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would like him to score. I, I just want him to continue to be dangerous when he moves off the ball because that's the stuff that's going to lead to consistent goal scoring opportunities. There's a goal for Verda Bremen, Taylor, that I had this like flashback to earlier this week that he hit. This was maybe la- two years ago. Maybe this is right before he moves to Norwich. I don't remember when it is, but he hits this banger from outside the box. I don't, I think it might have been against Schalke. It doesn't matter when, who, who it was against, but he scored that goal. And I remember us talking about how, wow, that's great. 
but also it doesn't really solve the Josh Sargent problem. And in the same way, I don't think scoring a goal yeah. without more context really exactly. solves the Josh Sargent problem either. So just continuing to play at the nine, fingers crossed, and do good stuff. Like if, if he continues to do that, he's still one of the most talented nines in this whole pool. Continue to perform, continue to play, and, and I think the conversation starts to change. There's a long way to go until he starts that opening game in, in Qatar. So let's not get too ahead of ourselves. But it would be it would be quite funny after everything the USMNT has been through in the search for number nine, if uh, if that did happen, just as everyone thought it would three years ago. We, we kind of have come full circle where Josh Sargent is now scoring goals. With the two Americans we have at Leeds, their intensity and style of play, the intensity Weston McKinney always brings, watching Josh Sargent against Millwall, shockingly, Millwall pretty physical in this game. He gets knocked around a lot. He does not get many calls. I do think if you bring him in, you are setting up a U.S. team that will run people over and handle the physicality of certain opponents pretty well. So I think in that way, this uh, the... Uh, relegation to the championship has maybe also helped him get those minutes, get that experience, but also learn to battle, learn to hold the ball up and hold people off and and still make plays. So I'm feeling more confident about Josh Sargent than I felt in quite some time, but we'll have to see how that continues if he ends up starting or continues to start, if he keeps scoring goals, if he makes that September roster. And if he does, we will certainly be talking about him. My guess would be that we will also be talking about FX's Welcome to Wrexham uh, once it premieres August 24th on FX. Listeners can stream it on Hulu. We thank FX's Welcome to Wrexham for sponsoring this segment of our Americans Abroad coverage and an American doing things in the lower leagues. An American who sort of was doing things in lower leagues, but now is doing things in the top flight would be Jordan Pifok scoring goals again. in Switzerland. Good gracious. Wow. I mean, I mean, you know, it is what it is. It's Switzerland. They're fine, but they're not maybe the top, top tier. You're right to equate them with like just as well. They're neutral and everything. Yeah. 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 What are you going to do, Switzerland? Be more neutral? Tell your wife hello, like the neutral planet, Futurama (laughs) fans? Anybody? Anybody? Is this thing on? Anyway, Josh, uh, Josh, Joe, let's talk Jordan Pifok. There's too many J's in this conversation. Uh, Looks like the old Pifok, but he's scoring goals, and I feel like he's doing other things. I'm of mixed opinions. Joe, what are you making of his time with Union Berlin so far? I'm liking what I'm seeing. He's got three goals in four games for Union Berlin, one in the Cup and two in the league. He helped uh, Union Berlin beat RB Leipzig over the weekend, which inspired my Bundesliga sadness, which I'm sort of just in from now until I think the end of time or until <laughs> we get playoffs or whatever it's going to be in the Bundesliga. He's starting up top as part of a front two and a 3-5-2, and he's, he is doing a lot of the classic Jordan Peefock stuff. So he's an outlet for long balls. He's pressing out of a mid-block. He's not super mobile so he's not like he's not a guy that you can really carry in a high press but Union Berlin don't do that stuff so I I think generally that suits his game he's on front post duty for Union Berlin's corner kick defending which I think is great because he's he's a big dude and is pretty good in the air and he's he's scoring goals so he scored against Leipzig had an assist in that game as well, but that was low-key, mostly his his teammate doing all the work there. But on the goal, he, he gets forward on the break, he receives with his right, he takes a touch with his right, and he shoots, he scores. It's, it's a really nice sequence, quick-fire shot, relatively speaking. He has some pretty clever passes, too, in this game. 58th minute, takes a one-touch right-footed back heel or sole flick, I don't know which it is, it's hard to tell, to a teammate running underneath. It, it looks really clean with some of his build-up. It's not perfect, so some loose touches in that game against Leipzig. 43rd minute, ball comes into him, coming in hot. He can't cushion it, and and, and, uh, and Berlin lose possession. But good movement. I, I like a lot of what I'm seeing from Jordan Pifok. It's a good level. The fact that he's scoring goals is good. I want to see this over, like, 
another month of games, which is convenient because we have about another month of games before the the U.S.'s game against Japan and Germany and then against Saudi Arabia and Spain. There is time. I want to see more from Jordan Pivak at, at the highest level he's ever played, but the early returns are, are really good, Taylor. Graham, do you feel like we have seen more from Jordan Pivak in his time with Union Berlin? Because watching his his moments, I watched every moment he was on the ball or around the ball. Uh, thank you, Wise Scout. Uh, it did seem like he was doing some things that I don't always equate with Jordan Pivak. Yeah, so obviously all, all the the old the same old Pivak instinct, instincts are, are there. He's still excellent inside the pe- the penalty area. And Joe, you mentioned the the, the front post thing <laughs> that has definitely been a, a, a feature of his play for for Union Berlin. His first goal against Hertha Berlin on opening weekend showed uh, you know his 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 goal scoring instincts. He gets in the near post ahead of his man. He glances home a header from eight yards out. That was pretty much classic Jordan Pivak. But there have been other moments where I've thought to myself, "That's new." Or if it's not new, we've not seen it from Jordan Pifok previously, certainly for, for, for young boys. He is, he's dropping deep and he's doing a lot to, to link up with the wide forwards. His, his pass for the second Union Berlin goal against Leipzig at the, at the weekend was a sign of this. He's being asked to do more in possession. I think his passing has been sharp. He's looked nimble. And as I say, it could be the case that he's always had this in his game and he just didn't have a, a chance to show them for, for young boys. But I've been, I've been impressed with just how well-rounded his his game is, and obviously there is a ceiling to what he can achieve in that respect. As 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 Joe mentions, he is a he's he's a he's a big guy, you know. He, he's not particularly mobile, so he's he's not all of a sudden going to become Thierry Henry. But I have seen more to his game since he's since he's joined Union Berlin. Obviously, the, their their game maybe demands that they are more of a, a counter-attacking side they're not necessarily a ball dominant team there will be times when Union Berlin have to stay compact and then make the most of, of moments of quick transition but PFOC has shown that he is capable of, of facilitating those sort of uh, attacks. We talk a lot about him not being particularly mobile but I wouldn't say he's slow either. I don't think either one of you would either. Is it is it the, the acceleration? Is that what makes him look like he's not quite at that sort of elite level when it comes to the sprinting? Yeah, he he like lumbers around. Yeah. I, th- I, don't, I don't. That's not an indictment of Jordan Pivak. That's just the reality. He's a big dude. He, he's good at a lot of things that players of different sizes aren't. But he's not going to get from zero to sixty as fast as Jesus Ferreira, who I looked I looked the other day at this fellow on Second Spectrum, who provides a lot of really great MLS data. And Jesus Ferreira is the second fastest player in Major League Soccer in terms of top speed. I would not have guessed that because he plays and, and drops in so much. But when Ferreira is going, he's dangerous in the open field. And that also applies to the press. He's only slower than Cade Cowell, who is just like a built in a lab, basically. So he is, he is the fastest non-lab built MLS player. I'm just going to go and say it that way. But Jordan Pifak doesn't have that top speed. And he also doesn't have someone like Jesus Ferreira's acceleration. Uh, he has been particularly effective on the counter for Union Berlin, uh, both in terms of scoring goals, but also I have seen him dropping in, holding up play, laying it off to the wide attackers, as I believe Graham mentioned. Graham, are you liking that, uh, seeing what he's doing on the counter, or or do you see issues with that from a U.S. perspective? So from an individual perspective, I I very much like what I've seen from from Jordan Pifok. He really couldn't have done any more to... To, to impress me even more because he's just, as I say, he's showing more to his game than I realized he had. From a US perspective, I, I can see a slight issue if he's playing in that Union Berlin team because the US always, ha- oh, sorry, already has players who 
can play in this way. Jesus Ferreira, Sargent, if he's back in the picture, uh, Wea, Pulisic, they're all at their best when they have space to work it with and when, when um, you have those moments of quick transition, maybe even a counter-attack. But for me, anyway, and maybe the two of you disagree, what, what the US needs is a centre-forward who knows how to score against low defensive block teams. That's where the US have struggled, particularly in that number nine position on, under Berhalter. And, and the idea was maybe that PFOC was the, the, the best equipped player to help in these situations. If he's now playing for a quick transition team, even if he's scoring goals for fun, we have less evidence to suggest that he can be that player for the, for the USMNT. So maybe he does fit in with your Ferreras and Pulisic's and, and way, uh, Tim, Timothy Weah. But if the idea is that he's a plan B and he offers something different, it's not ideal that he's now playing in a team that uh, uh, attacks in a similar way to a lot of his teammates. Is, I, I is think, my logic on that. I think when I think about the US's number nine situation right now, I think less about like the situation that PFOC could could play in or, or maybe the situation that he's playing in now at his club. Maybe that's a better way to phrase it. I just think more about his profile. He's dangerous in the air. He can hold up the ball. He does stuff that Jesus Ferreira doesn't do. He does stuff that Josh Sargent doesn't do. He does stuff that Brandon Vasquez doesn't do. And he certainly does stuff that Haji Wright doesn't do, if we're going to put his name in this conversation too. He is, he's a threat in the air, and he's dangerous in some of those moments where you can break out and have him be the, the, the fulcrum, right? He's, he's the guy you're running off of in some of those moments. I, I think that adds value. And if we see consistent production at the Bundesliga level between now and the World Cup, it's going to be really hard for Greg Berhalter to, to leave him off the roster. I think this is, this is what I wanted to see from Jordan Pifak. I, I, I really, I don't want to say I, I could care less, but I, I don't, I'm not as bothered with how Union Berlin play. I want to see PFOC go out there and prove it against high-level teams on a regular basis. So far, he's doing that. And if he continues to do that, I think he's probably going to the World Cup, even though he doesn't fit Brawlther's system, right? And, and at a certain point, the system fit matters less and less if you're continuing to score goals against better and better opposition than anyone else that's in the striker pool. That's where PFOC is right now. So I think it does matter, right? It's important that he continues to improve other areas of his game. But if he scores goals on the break for Union Berlin and that's all he does and he's getting some looks on corner kicks and stuff like that, I mean, you could do a lot worse if you're Greg Baralter. Let's just put it that way. Joe, they will be in the Europa League. If they were to draw a Swiss team and he scored against them, would that count as scoring against high-level opposition? Well, not according to you. That's scoring against like this second tier question. opposition. Yeah, <laughs> this is my. All right, so that counts for you. Okay, maybe sure. less so for me. Uh, let's do this. Let's table Jordan Pifak for now because we've got a question about number nines still to come. In fact, we've got several listener questions still to come. Let's get to those in just a second. First, one more break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. It's USMNT-centric listener question time. Now, up first, one from Guillermo Salva. One, Guillermo with an A, not Guillermo, Guillermo. Uh, what European clubs Gizmo. play system... <laughs> Guillermo. Uh, what European <laughs> clubs play systems similar to what Burhalter most commonly implements with the USMNT? Could that come into play at all for our roster selection? Graham, any thoughts on which clubs maybe influence Burhalter or play a similar style to Burhalter. 
So to answer the second part of the question first, I, I don't think in the USMNT's case at this specific moment it, it comes into play much because in international soccer, in my opinion, this is only really a factor if you have a core of players at one club. So the obvious example is Spain had that core at, at Barcelona when they won the World Cup. Germany had and still continue to have a, a core at Bayern Munich. The, the USMNT doesn't really have that, I guess, unless you count FC Dallas alumni and they're not really all together anymore. But in terms of which European teams use a similar system to the USMNT under, under Berhalter, I don't think there's a perfect comparison, at least at the, at the top level of the European game, right? But I'm going to make a suggestion. There is some overlap with Liverpool in the way that they yep. get their fullbacks high. They play a 4-3-3 designed to create opportunities for the wide forwards. And they want their defenders to play out from the back. When Ferreira drops deep into that hole and creates space for the wide forwards, that's pretty similar to what Roberto Firmino certainly used to do for Liverpool. And I guess you could argue that Tyler Adams is the Fabinho figure as well. And obviously the USMNT don't play with the the intensity of Liverpool. I would argue it's difficult for them to do that as an international team anyway. But there is still a counter-pressing element to their play under Berhalter and, and Liverpool have that, obviously. So that, that was maybe the, the best comparison that I could come up with. Joe, you, you agreed with that one. Is Liverpool the best example? Yeah, I, I think it is a good example. It is not a carbon copy. Liverpool have become more and more possession dominant over the years as their their squad's gotten better and better under Jurgen Klopp. So I, I'm not sure the U.S. are moving in that same direction. I think, if anything, they're moving towards the transition direction. If, if you think about it as like this long spectrum where you have really possession dominant on one side and counterattacking on the other. I think Baralter tried to start it closer to the possession end, has now moved closer to the middle, and Liverpool maybe moved closer to the possession end after starting in the transition end. But there are similarities, certainly in terms of shape. We've seen Baralter use that 4-3-3 press after, after 2019. He started using that at the beginning of 2020. Certainly similarities there. I, I, I didn't have a ton of obvious comparisons. The, the issue with Liverpool is just they're so much more talented and can do so many more things and tend to be flexible in some different ways than the U.S. is. There weren't a lot of obvious comparisons that came to mind for me. If listeners, you have any tweet at us, because I'd be curious to, re- to, to hear your thoughts. Brighton under Graham Potter came to mind, but I don't think it's a great comparison. The U.S. are probably a little more transition-heavy than they are as well. Not really the same shape, and, and Potter tinkers maybe more than Baralter does. Valencia under Gattuso is a very early comparison, but basically... They're in that 4-3-3 shape. They're averaging more than 50% possession so far this year. There are some similarities there, even though Berhalter kind of deviated from that 4-3-3 recently. The other part of this question that I thought was interesting is, could that come into play? Could the stylistic similarities come into play when it comes to roster selection? And really the reason why I thought about Valencia was with Yunus Musa. Musa was going to get called up anyway. He was going to be a, a really important piece for the U.S. of the World Cup anyway. But he's certainly helped by the fact that Gattuso's playing him as a central midfielder, which is not something he's ever done before on a consistent basis for Valencia. That's, that's a big help. And I think the same goes for Sargent. If he is playing as a number nine, and that is a massive caveat under Dean Smith, the same goes for him playing as a nine in a 4-3-3 with that front three. He's pressing out of that shape. He's possessing out of that shape. I think there's value there. But really, when we're talking about the fringes of this roster, the nine spots, the backup fullback, some of the backups down the spine... I don't think club style, and this goes back to what I said about PFOC, will have much to do with how Baralter goes about picking his players. Do, do you feel like it's, broadly speaking, Joe, it's basically 
there are many managers in many clubs who have similar tactics, formations, and setups. It's just the nuances that really set them apart. Because I yeah. can think of a lot of teams that are four three three, have a number nine who will drop in less so than lead the line, have like creative attacking fullbacks, have that midfield three that with like one sitting a little bit deeper, but sometimes partner. It feels like there's a lot of similarities, but then it's about how he coaches the nuances. Yeah, I mean, even if you think about Barcelona and, and toss out sections mm-hmm. of their game over the weekend where they did use more of a, a three two five. Although the U.S. do that too, so maybe maybe we don't toss that out. But Barcelona, even playing out of a similar shape with some of the same principles, you look at their personnel and it's a, it's a very different situation, right? Pedri and, and Gavi and whoever's playing as the number eights are are more elegant on the ball than the U.S. has for anybody in those spots. Sergio Busquets is, is a completely different player than Tyler Adams. Once you get past the macro, tactical things, or at least the shape, there are so many of those nuances, like you're saying, Taylor, that come from the players and their profiles that make it hard to have a like-for-like comparison. I'm not saying there aren't teams that are similar. There's probably some that I missed. There certainly are some that I missed here. But it's difficult to find a carbon copy at the club level. Uh, Joe, another question for us comes from Randy Morgan, and thank you to Guillermo for his question. Thank you to Randy for his. Have any of the American transfers to the Belgian Jupiler League worked out? Kyle Duncan seems to have regressed, and ha- we haven't heard much of the others that moved to that league. Joe, uh, I'm going to assume things have turned around dramatically, and Kyle Duncan is now having a rip-roaring good time in Belgium? Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's definitely not back on loan with the New York Red Bulls, which is uh, the club that he, he went to Belgium from. Yeah, it, it's not a great record at the moment for American players going to Belgium. I I think that has a lot more to do with the players themselves in a case-by-case basis than it, it really does with Belgium as a whole. I'm happy to be proven wrong on that and hear your, your guys' thoughts on this. But Kyle Duncan, he's back in the U.S., didn't really make that big of a mark in Belgium. Sam Vines is a it's kind of a maybe on this whole thing. He plays regularly. But I haven't seen him progress a ton. He hasn't elevated his status in the U.S. pool all that much. I don't think that's an Antwerp problem, though, really. Brian Reynolds is at Vesterloo on loan in Belgium after not thriving in, in Rome. I mentioned that earlier. He's not playing much at all, but that was a, sort of going to be a problem no matter what. He just has holes in his game and doesn't really seem to be progressing either. Owen Odesoe plays for Club Bruges. He's not really playing. Mark McKenzie is probably the highest potential U.S. men's national team player outside of Reynolds to move to Belgium in the last few years, and he started two games this year after playing about 1,300 minutes last year. So not great for Mark McKenzie, who hasn't really developed all that much either, and, and that just might be his ceiling as a sort of fringe player in a second-tier European league. Not a not a lower-division European league, but not one of the top, top European leagues. So it, it's not great, but I really think, by and large, that has more to do with the players moving there than it does with Belgium as a whole, but maybe I'm wrong on that. Otisoe is a is a weird one, right? I can't say he's a he's a player that I've watched a great deal of, but I, I remember when he was quite highly rated at, at, at Wolves, and Wolves were Wolves were quite disappointed to to lose him last summer to to Club Brugge, and and as far as I can tell, he didn't make a single first team appearance last season, even though injuries didn't didn't seem to be an issue there, and he has made his debut in the Belgian Super Cup this summer, but. And by all accounts, he was very impressive in that game, but it just feels like he has been placed on the shelf and kind of forgotten about a little bit. Graham, what is your perception of the Belgian league? Because I think I agree with Joe in that we have had some successes there. I would argue they're less recent. So Sasha Kleshton has a long career in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Gucci Yewu has some success there as well. But I think more recently less so and it and I can't tell if it is just the caliber of players that are ending up there or if it's a peculiarity with the Belgian league itself the Belgian league is definitely a strange one because it feels like it should be 
of a higher level. And I think the the lower, like if you go to the bottom of the Belgian Super League, I think if I had to compare it to Scottish football, naturally being a Scot, that is my my uh, my instinct. The first one league I go to, I think there that level is higher than the bottom of the Scottish Premiership. But the weird thing about the Belgian league is I don't think their top teams are, partic- are of a particularly high standard. So you're looking at Anderlecht and Club Brugge, and every so often they will qualify for the Champions League group stages and maybe they, they, they kind of peak every so often. But, for example, Rangers played uh, Union Sen Galoisi, I think I've nailed that one now, <laughs> who came very close to winning the, the Belgian title last season. Rangers played a terrible first leg and still managed to get through that that qualifier. So it feels like their top teams are maybe not as high quality as they should be, which is strange for a country with such a a high-quality national team. Yeah, that's the thing that that is confusing, because when you look at how good their national team is, how many young players and veteran players there are coming out of Belgium, you would expect that league would have that sort of reputation the way the Eredivisie has, as being a sort of developmental proving ground for younger players, and I would say it doesn't. And and part of that, I think, is changing. I do think there's more... like. Scouting happening there, I think there's more transfers coming out of the Belgian League. But for the most part, there's that one move, uh, de Catalere. My my pronunciation again, terrible. Uh, that that's a pretty lucrative one. But that aside, most of the transfers out this season have been, aside from a few that were in the 11 million range, a lot of them are single digit millions. A lot of them are in the hundreds of thousands. So I don't think there's a ton of money, which isn't a knock. It's just to say that I think the Belgian League is still seen as you can be really good here, but unless you are exceptionally good, you need to make a move to another sort of mid-tier club before you get that next look. And and I think when when that's the case, what that means to me is if you're moving from a Belgian club to Sassuolo, you're probably not moving for a ton of money. So I don't think there's as much motivation for Belgian clubs to move players on for one and two million dollars. Uh, I think a lot of free transfers in and free transfers out. I think there is a frugal uh, aspect to the way they build their teams and develop players. And so with that in mind... I'm then less surprised that we have more Americans going there and sort of staying there to varying degrees of success because it's not the sort of you go there, you have one really good season or two really good seasons, and then you make that jump. That doesn't seem to be the way it's going for American players because, Joe, I hear you. I think it it is about the quality of some of those players, but simultaneously I feel awkward saying, yep, if you're going to Belgium, (laughs) you're not at the tier that you need to be. But it does feel like we're moving in that direction of it's less of a, oh, cool, he's going to Belgium. That should work out. At this point, I I kind of am more in the thinking of, Oh, he's going to Belgium. I I hope I hope he gets minutes because that hasn't always been the case for certain players. Sam Vines being one of those. You mentioned him, Joe. We were talking about potentially being on some rosters, potentially being in that conversation. I wouldn't put him anywhere close to that roster, at least comfortably right now. That's not entirely Belgium's fault, but it is a product of him going there and not having that immediate success. So I, I think... The list of Americans who have had a lot of success coming, uh, going to Belgium, coming out of Belgium is smaller, shorter than the list of Americans who have not had as much success. It's not my favorite league for an American to make the jump to. I feel like I've taken a lot of shots at Belgium. Would either of you like to come to their defense? <laughs> Good just, chocolate. Yeah, just Belgium and Switzerland that, that are catching strikes from Taylor. It really I do is. Think my, my last thought on this is... Luxembourg, I'm coming for you next. <laughs> the reason why I think it, it is partly a player-specific issue is... You think about those players that we ran through, Duncan, Vines, Reynolds is maybe outside this category, but Otisoe, McKenzie, Chris Durkin falls into this category. 
they're not the best of the best in in terms of talent coming up through U.S. soccer. Those players are going to the Bundesliga. They're going to the Premier League. They're going and, and playing in La Liga or Serie A, and they're having success. Part of that could be the league. Part of it is the individual situation. Those things have have impact here. And part of it is just they're better players, and so they're more likely to succeed because they're just better at soccer. So maybe that's part of this too, is is you're going to Belgium and it's it's going to be more difficult for these players, not because they're bad, but just because they're not Yunus Musa or Tyler Adams or Weston McKenney or Gio Reyna. There's, they're in a different tier, and so I'm guessing that has more to do with the success or lack thereof than any any sort of macro environment issue. I also think Belgium has, if not lax, then more relaxed laws when it comes to immigration. Uh, and I think their foreign player rules as of a couple of years ago was only like you had to have six players that were developed in Belgium and then you could have foreign players outside of that. So I think there's also it's easier for Americans to make that jump, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a move that's going to suit them long term. So I will stop taking shots at Belgium uh, since I feel like I've been unkind. Uh, Graham, I leave it to you to talk about some center backs. This question from Lee Sterling. Tim Ream has now started and captained a Premier League side for three weeks. Is he creeping closer to getting on that plane? And from at Congem, uh, how is our center back pool doing? CCV, Zim, Long, EPB, etc. Does Ream deserve a call up? Also asked by Congem. So Graham, uh, let's start with Tim Ream. What have you made of him to start the season? I think he is maybe edging slightly closer to the plane, but I still think he's stuck at TSA and it's likely that the plane leaves before he gets his bag through the scanner. I think Reem is certainly a player worth talking about given that he's performing well at Premier League level. As we mentioned on, what day is it? Tuesday? Yesterday? Weekend review. Uh, Fulham have been a surprise package in the Premier League. I know it's only three games in, but they've been a lot better in those three games than we all expected. Certainly a lot of people expected. And Tim Ream, as Lee mentions, has as their captain, has started all three games. So yes, uh, naturally he deserves discussion. But I, I just think if you haven't had a look at a USMNT roster for a while, as is the case with Ream, it's going to be difficult slash almost impossible to get back in it this close to a World Cup. I, I don't feel like Berhalter, the, the appetite for him to experiment much is, is, is going to be that great at this point. We are, I think, under three months away from the World Cup now. What is it, 89 days or 90 days to, to the World Cup? So it feels like Reem maybe needed this a year ago to force his way back in, into, into that roster. In terms of the pool as a whole, I think it's looking okay. Obviously, the, the Miles Robinson injury wasn't ideal, but I think Chris Richards playing for Palace in the Premier League regularly is, is a good thing, even if it's on the right side. Zimmerman is obviously a, a lock in there as long as he stays fit. Cameron Carter-Vickers is still playing for Celtic and will be playing in, in the Champions League group stages this season, so I think we'll learn a lot more about him in, in those games. Aaron Long hasn't been all that great recently, but Berhalter clearly likes him and he's still fit for the moment. I'd also throw James Sands' name in there. I know Berhalter doesn't really see him as a centre-back, but he's been playing there for Rangers recently and doing well enough. You wouldn't say he's been outstanding or anything, but he's he's managed to keep his place in, in that team, albeit due to injuries to uh, to other key players. But he is he's one of those players that if he's included in the roster as, as a midfielder, maybe he's on the bubble, maybe he's one of the players that gets in because it's a 26-man squad rather than a 23-man squad. He is one of those players who can, who's versatile enough to perform two different roles. You could put him at centre back and yet I wouldn't be too worried about him in that position. So the pool is the pool is 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 looking pretty strong. There's obviously not a 
there's not a standout figure in there like there is in other areas of the the USMNT team. You know, there's not a Pulisic or a McKenney or an Adams or anything like that. But I think in terms of the individual talent, it's it's pretty strong. Joe, for any uh, TSS co-hosts who have been doing a shameful job of tracking American center backs playing for, say, the New York Red Bulls, uh, uh, Graham saying Aaron Long hasn't been too good recently. Would you agree? And if so, what's the uh, situation there? So Aaron Long is still a regular starter for the Red Bulls. Um, he's still doing a lot of those pressing things. The Red Bulls play soccer that's hard to watch but can be very, very effective at times. He's got almost 2,000 minutes played this year, and I think he's he's getting closer and closer to being the same Aaron Long that we remember. I'm just not sure he's ever going to get quite back to that level. Now at 29, almost 30, he'll be 30 before the World Cup. He's, he's not exactly the same as he used to be, but... I think he's still a fine center back. I'm not really all that excited about him being a regular with the national team. I think there's a non-zero chance that he starts a game at the World Cup, which I, I don't love. Aaron Long's a, a great guy. I think he's good at a lot of things, but he's he's not exactly the, the reliable defender that I think he's often billed to be. So he, he's a fine option, but like Grant said, Berhalter likes him, and, and he's a, a favorite of his, and I think is, a, a, by all accounts, a good locker room presence. And there is some merit to having players like those involved. And also, when I look at the pool, I'm thinking, well, who do I really want in over Aaron Long? If, if you think about Zimmerman and Richards as the first two names on that depth chart, then you add Cameron Carter-Vickers in there. Maybe you add Aaron Long, who, who seems like he's going to go, but I'm not thrilled with that. But am I that much more excited about Eric Palmer-Brown or, or Vickers or, or Tim Ream? Not really. So it kind of is just fine for me, no matter what happens really with those spots. Yeah, it's not a crisis situation, but it's not a, oh, here's the, the, the future center back of the USMNT for the next 20 years. It's sort of in between with that second tier. But I'm with you. Zim and Richards seem the, the dead set locks to go, injury and playing time provided. And then it is that second, secondary group of CCV, uh, of Long, of maybe EPB. Uh, maybe, maybe Sands. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So some other possibilities in there. Uh, but I think overall we're in a stronger position there than maybe a couple other spots, even with Miles Robinson injured. So that makes me happy. Uh, Conrad De La Fuente, Joe, will not be playing center back, uh, but will he be playing for the U.S.? is a question from Stacks underscore Bobby. More specifically, any takes on Conrad De La Fuente? Is he at all on people's radar? Certainly not on Marseille's radar anymore, Joe. No, not on Marseille's radar. As far as takes go, great name. I think that's yep. my first take about Conrad De La Fuente, really just <laughs> top-tier USMNT player pool name. Top-tier name in general, like Set Sock, aside really strong name he is no longer at Marseille he's on loan to Olympiacos in Greece from Marseille at 21 he could play in some Europa League this year which would be good for him he's just never found his rhythm really no matter where he's been whether that's at Barcelona which he was never going to find his rhythm there because he wasn't going to play or Marseille last year he played about 800 minutes and it wasn't great for them and wasn't great for the U.S. men's national team either back when he was called up for the very first window of World Cup qualification in September of 2021 there just isn't room for the U.S. on, on the wings for Conrad. If Tim Weah is out, it's going to be someone like Georgie or, or Malik Tillman, who I think has been involved much more recently than Conrad. There isn't room on the wings, and he hasn't proven himself that he's, he's reliable enough defensively to play as a more defensive option on the wing, as a fullback or maybe a, a utility wingback. He's just not there. And so maybe he plays really well at Olympiacos and, and things start to change. But until we see that, it's a, it's a prove-it situation for Conrad right now. I- I can't remember if it was last preseason or even the preseason before that, but there was there was there was a time when Dela Fuente was playing a couple games for Barcelona as a left wing back, mm-hmm. and I, I was interested to see how that yeah, was fun. would work out because 
Barcelona at that time, obviously they've got Jordi Alba, but at that time they didn't have a backup option, and it was it was one of the talking points ahead of whatever season that was. And De La Fuente, it felt like there was a chance he was going to be that player for them, and he left before he was able to to kind of take that role on in the squad. So that that felt like a bit of a sliding doors moment. Obviously, he could have been a disaster in that position, but we I'm just I feel like we never got the chance to know if that is his position. And and since then, is as you say, Joey just hasn't found. A rhythm, and and to be honest, it'll take some pretty notable performances for me to get seriously interested in De La Fuente again, just because I don't watch a great deal of Greek football, and so I'm only really going to see him in any continental games he plays. Yeah, I've chosen the, the Turkish side of that divide, so I am uh, legally not allowed to watch the Greek Super League. Uh, Graham, <laughs> which would be more surprising to you? Uh, Conrad De La Fuente, a quick Google search informs me that Fuente means, amongst other things, a spring or a fountain. So he is Conrad of the fountain or of the spring. He is from Florida. Which is more surprising to you, Graham, if he ends up making the World Cup roster or if he is a reincarnation of Ponce de Leon who is searching for the fountain of youth? Which one? <laughs> uh, the former yeah? would be more surprising, okay. I think. <laughs> All right. So going to the World Cup, that's where he is on your depth chart. Good to know. I feel like we've answered that one, but I do hope for the best for Conrad De La Fuente because that's another one, Joe, that we've talked about for a long time. We've watched him for U.S. youth national teams for many on many occasions and always felt like he could be that player who makes that next level jump. We had hoped it would be with Barcelona. Maybe it will be with Olympiacos, maybe elsewhere. But I think he's one we'll keep an eye on, but does seem to be maybe outside the radar right now. Final question. I'm going to go to Graham first for this one, since I've already teased Joe plenty about number nines. But we will get Joe's thoughts on basically a lot of questions about the number nine spot. One from Frank Riley. Uh, what everyone wants to know coming out of the weekend, if all strikers are in form, as most appear to be now, who does Greg take to Qatar and why? Uh, another one from C. Schmid Soccer. Uh, I know PFOC doesn't necessarily fit Burhalter's system, but at what point does that matter if he keeps putting in goals? Another one from at USMNT Ballboy. Is there a realistic scenario where all of our number nine woes are solved by Florin Balogun this World Cup cycle? Basically, Graham... Uh, I, I think I will ask you for your ranking or a couple rankings in a moment. First, just overall, I think there has been much consternation about the number nine spot for the U.S., but it does feel like we've got some players scoring goals, some players finding form, things less of a concern than they were maybe a month ago for me. How say you? Yeah, absolutely. A few months ago, the, the issue was, why is nobody scoring hmm. any goals? And now it's, well, maybe some of them could stop scoring goals to make this decision a little bit easier because it feels like everyone is, is in form, even players like Hadji Wright, and he's been doing it pretty consistently. Josh Sargent scoring goals for Norwich, which didn't feel like a, a realistic scenario not so long ago. So yeah, it feels like the, the US, I'm not going to say it's it's a, a an amazingly strong area yeah. of the roster because you don't have a Lewandowski or a Benzema. But as I've said previously, not many countries do have those sort of players. So the US are... are they, they won't have the worst options in the tournament in this in this position. All right. So we won't be the worst, Joe. Uh, will we be the best? Uh, which of those questions would you most like to answer or feel comfortable most answering? Uh, from Frank, from C. Schmidt Soccer, from USMNT Ballboy. I'll take the Balogun question because right. Balogun had not really been on my radar either. I knew that he'd made a move over to Liga, playing for Stade de Rime in in France. But I didn't realize maybe how much he'd been playing. So he's 21 on loan there uh, from Arsenal. Has three goals in 180 minutes. So that's across three games. One is a penalty. One was him hanging out at the back post. And one was a header. 
he's getting into good spots, which I like. He's playing mostly as part of a front two, so I do wonder how that impacts things. It's not a direct fit, just like it's not with PFOC in terms of the structure around him. But Balogun, I think he has a lot of potential. I would be surprised, though, to get to the actual question if he leapfrogs uh, someone like Jesus Ferreira or PFOC or Sargent or or even someone like Brandon Vasquez, who I think is a little closer to being called in than Balogun. If he continues to score and is just raking in goals by the time November comes around, yeah, like the door's probably still going to be open and we can have a different discussion. I think it's just a little too early on in the year for there to be enough data on, on, on Balogun in Liga and actually him, him playing and getting regular appearances. It's too early for me on that. And I think if something changes and he continues to do that stuff and maybe someone else drops out and isn't scoring goals, it, it looks a little different. But for now, I'd say no. But I would like to put an asterisk there that says I can change my mind before November 20, whatever it's going to be. It's a similar principle to Tim Ream, right? It's, it's just too late in the in the cycle. Maybe if this had been a year ago, or certainly if this had been a year ago, he would he would be... In the picture, it, it would take. I'm going to put a number on it, right? Just for the just for the sake of it, it would take uh, between 12 and 15 goals, or obviously more, to before the World Cup break for him to seriously be in contention for that roster, in my opinion. Which obviously would be an incredible haul, but that's that's my point. He needs to be basically uh, unavoidable as a pick to get into yeah. that roster. Anything less than that, I don't think he's on the plane. I like the idea of him being unavoidable, him being inevitable. Uh, It seems like we will be taking three forwards, even with the expanded roster. Maybe it ends up being uh, four. But for purposes of this conversation, I was on Jason Davis's uh, serious show yesterday. He asked me the same question. And I basically divided it into, if we're taking three forwards, I think Jesus Ferreira is the one I am most comfortable with, who I'm most comfortable starting, having number one on my depth chart. And then I think the number three striker for me right now would be Jordan Pifak, both because of his form and because I think he offers just a different look at the number nine spot. And then my assumption was that that other striker would be somebody who could spell Jesus Ferreira, do similar things, deputize if he gets injured or suspended. Um, So, Joe, if you go with that line of thinking, which player right now would you have as that I guess, sort of second, but third uh, striker for the United States. My assumption is that you're going to go with Brandon Vasquez. Well, if we're trying to compare to Jesus Ferreira, I think Sargent is closer to Ferreira than Vasquez is. But I don't think either one is all that close to Ferreira, to be honest. So I I don't know that there is like someone that can deputize as a Ferreira replacement. I I, I do not know how to answer this question. I think today I am probably most intrigued by by still bringing Brandon Vasquez because he's proved it for this entire season and even stretches of last season. And Sargent's situation is just so volatile. But, I mean, again, this is all subject to change. I, I agree with you, Taylor. Ferreira is number one on the depth chart right now. I think he has the clearest path. But even that, I don't think is, like, totally set in stone. This could go so many different ways between now and the World Cup roster being announced. I just want to see continued improvement from a lot of these players. I want to see them continuing to move into good spots and ideally, as a result of those things, continued goal scoring. I'll, I'll give you my three. I don't mind my. Uh, I don't mind making myself look like an idiot <laughs> when the when the World Cup comes around and it's no, nothing like this this selection. Uh, Taylor, who was who was your third striker? So you said you said Ferreira and Pifa, right? Yeah. Who was who was the third one? I didn't have one. Uh, I oh, avoided right, that okay. question definitely and instead gave you a list of possibilities. Ah, I think. Right. I think I went for Vasquez yesterday. Okay. 
So my my first two, and I've tried to apply some logic to this, right? So my first two are locks. I've got Jesus Ferreira and, and, and Jordan Peefock. If those two avoid injury and don't suffer an almighty dip in form, they they will be in my squad as far as I'm concerned. I'd, I'd be shocked if that wasn't the case. So I think I would only take three centre forwards. Yeah, and I know I've sure. had more forwards in previous rosters I've I've picked for certain windows but that was with a view to testing out some options ahead of the world cup i think by the time you get to the tournament itself you want a nimble squad and i, and I would also i, I would count to, uh, assuming he's fit uh where as one of my strikers i know that's not his 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 preferred position you you want him on the right ideally but i think he could feasibly play in 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 a center forward position if it got to that if you got as far down as the fourth option he he could play that role so with all that being said my third striker would be josh Sargent, with the caveat that he is playing a decent number of matches at center forward for norwich and i'm aware this might be recency bias uh, but here's my logic i have three strikers i want two who can facilitate plan a and one for plan b so pfock is my plan b Ferreira is my plan A, so I need another striker who can deputise for Ferreira and not disrupt disrupt the rest of the team too much. And that player for me is is out of the pool anyway, is 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 Sergeant. And Vasquez is obviously another good option, as is Hadji Wright, but both of those would be more plan B options for me, and I don't want to have more plan B options than plan A options. So that is my logic on why I've picked those three. Here we are. All right. I like those answers. I like all your answers today, Graham and Joe. Uh, listeners, hope you all did as well. Uh, Graham Ruffin, thank you so much for taking the time to break down some Americans in action and to answer some questions today. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. Listeners, uh, if you are a Josh Star- Sargent stan, then you can send your angry messages to Joe Lowry. If you're a Brandon Vasquez fan, you can send them uh, to Graham. But Joe, thank you for defending Brandon Vasquez and for answering many questions yourself. Yeah, you got it. And if you're a resident of Switzerland or Belgium or apparently Luxembourg, <laughs> go ahead and fire those complaints right to Taylor at TotalSoccerShow.com. Just all of Benelux. Just all of Benelux. Listeners, unless you're from Benelux, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.